Welcome to Season 8 of the Art of Teaching podcast. My name is Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Darul people, the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording, and I'd like to pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Elders past, present and future, and I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on this land. Today I'm proud to share a conversation that I had with the amazing Liam Bassett. He is the Director of Digital Learning, Peter 12, at Westbourne Grammar School. In 2021, he was recognised as an Excellence Awardee for Education's Rising Star of the Year at the Australian Education Awards. And most recently, he was also listed as one of the Educators Rising Stars of 2022. He is a collaborative and empowering leader and believes that management is based on trust and that in order for productivity and innovation to thrive, we need to create environments where the team members we serve can thrive as well. I hope that you get as much out of our wide-ranging discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Uh, Liam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having a chat. Where are you phoning in from? Thank you, man. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I think we've been trying to schedule this now for too long. Six months or so, and our, and our schedules just haven't quite lined up. But um, yeah. no, I'm currently speaking to you from West Melbourne. I moved here about a year ago, and I just got back from Brisbane the other day, the sunny state of Queensland. So I'm back now in reality. Nice. What's Old the weather like down in Melbourne? In Melbourne? Um, it's not too bad at the moment. It's, it's meant to be raining all of this week. So we're in, we're in spring now, but you know what it's like in spring. It's a bit up and down. Nice. Nice. Quite uh, possibly the most important. A question for our discussion. What's your drink of choice? Drink of choice. I drink an oat milk cappuccino. And I was that really annoying person about four years ago when I was introduced to oat milk. And then I was like, great, I'm going to mention this at every cafe that I come across. And everyone was like, oat milk. And now finally it's it's common everywhere. Like I don't feel so strange when I order it anymore. Yeah. Nice one. And uh, is there a book that you have read recently? It could be to do with education. It could be more personally that has caused you to stop and reconsider a few things in your life. We can when come I, back to any of these if you like later on. No, absolutely. Like I, when I first started teaching, I I needed to teach this text, and it was called a, It was a biography by David Vincent, and it's titled "The Boy Who Wouldn't Die," and it's about the Sudanese refugee who was trained as this child soldier uh, until he's about. 26 and he survived famine wars living in these camps for 15 different years and it's interesting because when I was when I was reading I thought okay I've got to read this book for for, for teaching it's my first my first teaching gig my first teaching job I was so nervous so anxious I was feeling really overwhelmed I was like I've got to get a suit it's like why do I need to wear a suit for work I was like I don't own a suit and I was reading this book and it just really resonated me at the time because I was feeling so stressed and I was thinking, wow, think of what this guy has gone through to get to where he mm. is today. Uh, and it just completely dissipated all of that stress. But that at the time, and even probably still, still to this day, it's really changed, I think, my perception a little bit of things because of, I don't 
don't know, just being tra- grateful for the life that we have. I don't know. It just really hit yeah. at the right time. And I always, that's the yeah. things I always think of. Have you uh, have you revisited that book at all? I think one of the things I love about reading is reading books is that they can speak to you at differently uh, at different points in your life. But have you ever revisited that and, and rediscovered? I haven't. I, I want to. I've got a pile of books on my desk at the moment that I'm still trying to get through. So it's always one of those battles of going, well, you try something new, do you revisit something that you've read in the past? But mm. I agree. I think books and texts in general can, can hit you at, at different yeah. points and take away so many different things. Yeah. Um, if you could have a dinner party, uh, who would be there? I mean, your family doesn't, uh, they obviously count, but they don't count in the seat count. Uh, so who would you like to sit down with? Could be past or present. Something that I think people may not know is that I'm a huge music buff. So I, I'm a musician myself. I, I write a lot of music. I record my own music. It's what I do really outside of, of of school and, and of work. And so the person that I'd want at my dinner party is an American musician. His name is Justin Vernon from the band Bon Iver or Bon Iver, if you've, if you've heard of that before. And I don't think there's necessarily any set question I would want to ask. There's no lingering thing that I'm like, I need to know this from this guy. But he's had a really big impact in terms of, I guess, shaping my musical style and my writing style. And so I would just like to meet him. And he's, I think, taught a lot. He has taught me a lot about myself. And I think if I sit him down in front of a chicken palmer, I think he will learn a lot about himself too, right? About you, surely, surely. It's chicken palmer, the great uh, unifying food. Uh, is, is there anyone else you'd like to sit down with or is, uh, is he the only one? Uh, can I stay on the, on the music train or are you wanting? Okay. Your, it's your dinner party. You can do it. It's my like. dinner party. I, honestly, I would choose another singer-songwriter. So. There's another American artist. His name is uh, Leighton Antelman from the band Lydia. And again, has his writing style is this really beautiful, uh, descriptive writing style where he's almost, I don't know, sometimes I think with song lyrics, they can be so internal and specific to someone, but yet they really connect with, with, with listeners. And so, again, I would love to have him at the dinner party and just to meet him and just to talk to him again put him in front of a chicken palmer. I'm sure I'll have the same impact on him. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, Interesting. even if I was to add about 10 more people, they would just continue to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Musicians. So, I mean, I, I can see um, uh, obviously in your background, you've got a guitar there. So I think you uh, obviously music education is extremely important to you, but, but, but why is it so like, why, what does it mean to you music education? Music education, there are, there are so many aspects to it. And uh, I teach English. So <laughs> one of the first things I say to my students every year when I have them, I say, look, what do you think of when you think of English? And they always say books. They go, yeah, books. Okay, yeah, books, great. You're going to make me read Macbeth or some other Shakespearean play or whatever. And then I go, yeah, okay, yes, books are definitely a text. But we can also think about movies. We can think about TV shows. We can think about video games. And of course, we can think about poetry and songs and music. And so I love music because it, it, it has that ability to, I think, have such a powerful influence on someone's emotions and feelings and perceptions. And 
you can listen to music in the same way as books, really. You know, you can listen to to music at different parts of your life and it means different things and that be so open for interpretation. And so music is is quite separate, I think, in, in my life from from education. I, I value music in education itself and when possible, we'll bring it into the classroom. Like I've, mm. I've taught um, a prep class before and so I was able to bring in my guitar and to sing some songs and all of that fun stuff. But Interesting. it doesn't quite work when I bring it into my year 12 English class. If I pull out yeah. my guitar, they, they kind of roll their eyes, I think. <laughs> I, I, of course, um, music or, or um, songs are texts. And I think that's an important, I think, uh, important thing to realize, like as you mentioned, like the whole concept of English is not just reading and writing; it's appreciation, it's composition, it's um, creating, it's uh, looking at um, uh, perspectives on text. So I think music would provide a really wonderful opportunity to at least have those discussions um, around what text creations are. And I think um, it's it's something that I wish I had um, I wish I had learnt more of in school. Um, I kind of grew up thinking that I wasn't a very good mathematician and I wasn't very good at music. Um, but of course, that's sort of not the case. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I wish I just wish I had a little bit more exposure to that in my school. So uh, continue bringing that um, guitar into prep classes, <laughs> singing with kids. Um, what was your uh, what was your upbringing like, Liam? And what are you most grateful for from your parents? I had a great upbringing. I mean, I was in a very loving household. I was a relatively typical, I use typical in inverted commas, uh, middle-class mm. family. So I had two older sisters, um, two parents that worked extremely hard. They were, I think, that the types of parents that would place a lot of trust in me and the things mm. that, that I would do. So if I said to my dad, hey, I want to go to this party on a Friday night, yeah, would be like, sure, okay. What time do you need me to pick you up? And I'd be like, oh, you know, Dad, I this could be three a.m. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, like, what time? And he would just say, look, call me, let me know, regardless of the time, I'll be there and I'll, and I'll pick you up. And I always, always loved that about my dad because mm-hmm. there were never any questions about what are you doing, where are you going, what time are you going to be home. It was always just this, this trust that was that was placed in me to be able to to do the right thing. There was other like times, even at a young age, when I was in prep because my mum worked, she, uh, we, we tried to walk home from, from my primary school. And at the time I, I, I couldn't do it because I kept forgetting to look both ways when I would cross the road. There was just this one tiny road that I had to cross and I couldn't do it because I was five and probably yeah. was thinking about crayons. Um, but so she said, look, I, we, we're going to get you to catch the public bus and throw, when I was in prep, I used to catch the public bus for one stop and I would walk on with like this gold coin and I would always just say, next stop, please. And I would stand there next to the bus driver and we would go the 300 metres and I would get off the bus and, and walk home. But I think about that now and, like, I, I will work with, with young students all the time and I'm like, oh, my gosh, if these students were on a public bus, <laughs> I do not know if they would make it home. Um, but I don't know. My, my parents thought, yep, we can do that. We can trust them to do it. And so I, um, I love that. And, and do you, that whole notion of trust, do you think that has has that impacted the way that you teach young people? Uh, do you, do you think about sort of those experiences in the classroom? Um, how has sort of your upbringing impacted you in the classroom? Inadvertently, yes, because I, I try to place a lot of trust in, in my students and my teaching philosophy is always about stepping back and, and allowing the, the genuine learning to, to take place so that students can 
have that agency and that autonomy and to, to take ownership over what we do in our lessons all the time. And with that comes that inherent nature of, of trusting them to be able to, to do that, to be able to, to self-guide and, and direct. And yes, with a flipped learning environment, you need to have some facilitation of that to ensure that meaningful is purposeful, uh, to ensure the learning is meaningful and purposeful. But still being able to step back and go, you know what, like I may not know what's going to happen and that's okay. And mm. as soon as you allow that, that's when you start to see those, those light bulbs, those sparks fly where a student goes, oh, great. I can, you know, I, I, I want to do a persuasive topic on uh, this fantastic uh, video game that I've played recently. It's like, great, awesome. You know, off you go. You know, like I don't, yeah. I don't need to give you these parameters around what you're going to talk about or what you're going to speak about. And, and so I think inadvertently, yeah. yes placing that, that trust in me as a, as a young person, I've definitely tried to, to pass it on to, to my students. Yeah. So, Liam, you seem, um, maybe it's just good lighting, but you seem pretty young. Uh, you <laughs> seem, uh, you're probably because you're on holiday and you look refreshed. Um, but just give us a, just a quick snapshot of how you got to where you are in education. What was your first couple of years of teaching like? Uh, any sort of great experiences with teachers? But how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I think I knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was probably around the age of 14 or 15. So I used to go to this Christian youth camp called Mill Valley Ranch. And have you heard of Mill Valley Ranch before? I, I have. I will. Um, yes, I have definitely heard of it. So all about horse riding. You would sing yeah. um, Christian uh, worship songs every day in the chapel. And I started attending this camp when I was about 10 years old. And you would be in this this wagon that you'd sleep in with about 10 other boys, all about 10 years old. And then you'd have a leader who would, I guess, work with that group throughout the week. And they would be about 15 years old. And it's crazy again for me to think about that now going, okay, this 15 year old had <laughs> all of this responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, when I, when I hit 15, I, I started to volunteer and to become a leader myself. And part of that involved creating these lessons that we would run every night with that, with that group of boys. And so we called them, uh, devos, which is colloquial, you know, for, for devotions. And you would tell a Bible story. And I, I love that part of, of the camp when I was a leader, because I would be sitting there throughout the second, okay, I've got to teach, I want to teach this, but I want to do it in a way that's really engaging for 10 year old boys. And, and how would I do this? And so even one of the, one of the kids one time said, oh, um, you know, what was it? what's it like to, to go on that journey of, of religion? Like you're going to make mistakes along the way. And I was like, yes, yes, you will. And so that night we did this, um, we did this challenge. So I had all these cones set up and at every cone they had to do like 20 push-ups and then 20 star jumps. And it was a bit of a competition. And so at the time I thought it was this really great lesson because it was this metaphor for this journey that people would go on in their life. Um, and I don't know, I just, I, I loved it. And so I immediately knew I wanted to, to study education. So I went to Monash and studied a primary and secondary degree. We were the first cohort to go through to study that degree, which was really interesting. So I was able to be in primary schools and secondary schools and have the extremely difficult decision of going, well, where do I gravitate towards? And yeah, started teaching about seven, eight years ago now and um, started teaching um, secondary English. I then moved into a role of uh, assistant year seven coordinator, which was primarily a pastoral care role. Uh, 
later I moved into the role of a house coordinator, so for years 10 to 12, so again, pastoral care, and then moved into the role of head of digital learning innovation, which was much more about teaching and learning. And, and then now I'm uh, at a new school and I've been there for the last year or so as the director of digital learning. So I now get to work with primary and secondary age school kids, which I love and can still draw from teaching and learning and well-being in, in what I do every day. Wow, I feel like I need to get my life together. Uh, <laughs> achieved achieved a lot in such a um, such just a short space of time, but it's it's super inspiring to hear. And and tell me, what on earth does the head of digital learning and innovation do? I mean, it sounds very prestigious, but practically, what does that involve? So, so my current role it's it's an interesting role because it, it's primarily in teaching and learning, but mm-hmm. you're also involved with too and so it's about working with with teachers on utilizing technology to enhance their their pedagogical approach so it's always about leading with with an evidence-based approach and working with them to go okay well let's look at the context of your classroom so your students but also let's look at our our culture as a school itself and go okay what are our, our learning objectives here what are we trying to achieve and how can we utilize digital tools to to facilitate that and I, I love it because it, it draws from the things that I'm passionate about, which is teaching and learning and, and, and empowering um, young people. And so it, it's, it's great and it's challenging. It is challenging mm-hmm. because I wouldn't necessarily say that I, I don't have an IT background as such. Yeah. So it, it means that you're always leading them with, with pedagogy and, and practice. Yeah. So what do you think then some of the, I mean, you mentioned uh, that you don't really have that IT background and my assumption sort of reading that title is that it is kind of heavily IT based, but what do you think are some of those sort of essential qualities um, that you need in that role and how, um, how have you sort of built that capacity in yourself? You sort of talked about that kind of strong research, mm. um, but what about, what about personal, personal qualities as well? Yeah, there's, I think the quality to be able to step back and to, to listen and to learn from others is really important. I, I always try to come from that approach of, I don't know necessarily all of the answers or even know all the right, the right answers. And so it's that, that partnership then to work with teachers on going, okay, again, what are we trying to achieve? And teachers are the, the queens and kings of their own domain, right? So you never want to kick that door down and go, here's what you need to do. And I want you to do it by next week. It's about saying, look, I'm going to present some things to you and let's, let's have a look. Let's go and see what's going to work and let's take some risks. Let's try something new and let's reflect and to see how we go. So there's that ability then to be able to, or I guess the necessity to be able to step back and to listen to the teachers sometimes because yeah. they're the experts. They're the yeah. experts of what they're doing and we've got to value that. So, so what do you think then, um, going a little bit deeper on that, what do you think your role is then? It's very philosophical. Mm. You talked a little bit of, I mean, um, just reading through your website, it says that you um, aspire to make a difference in education, lead pedagogical change and facilitate school-wide transformation. I may have just answered my own question then. <laughs> but if, the, if the teachers are the experts, what do you view as your role in that process? I think it's about reframing that mindset around technology mm-hmm. because 
I think when I, when I read articles and I th- see things online, and even when I talk to my mm-hmm. mates that are a range of different schools across the country, there's a certain connotation with technology. Yeah, and yeah. often people will lead with the fact, well, no, this inhibits my teaching practice. This, this adds to my workload. This takes away the time of, takes away time from meaningful learning. Whereas I actually think it should be the opposite. Mm. Technology should enable us to do some really fantastic things. It should save us time. It should enhance what we do rather than inhibit it. So I think a lot of that, that role and this type of role in, in schools at the moment is almost about stepping back a little bit and going, okay, well, we have this perception of what technology is. We have this perception of how digital tools should, are used in schools. And is that actually the best way? I think when you join a new school for the first time, you know, one of the first things that they'll do is they'll say, okay, here are the tools that we use. Here is our traditional learning management system. Here's the tool that we use for pastoral care notes. Here's the tools that we use for X, Y, and Z. Here's where your grades go. Here's where your, your feedback goes. And already you're funneled into going, okay, mm. this is how I use technology as a teacher. Yeah. And yeah. I think so much of it now, and dare I say post-COVID, is about stepping back and going, okay, yeah. How do we use this purposefully? What does this actually yeah. mean to use technology in our practice? Yeah, and I think it's so important. I just wanted to read something uh, quickly from your website and just wondering if you could spend a few moments just expanding it. And it says, education is finally back to normal. Well, for the most part, it's becoming increasingly clear how the role of the teacher has evolved over the last 15 years. Outside of education, society is uh, reimagining what it means to live and learn in the 21st century. And data suggests that this reimagining is happening faster than expected. So what are, I'm not going to read your whole article back to you, (laughs) um, but but what are some of these ways that we are reimagining what it means to live in the 21st century? And how is that notion of, in your perspective, how is that notion of education changed and where do you kind of see it going? Big question, sorry. Huge question. <laughs> That's a whole podcast in itself. Oh, yeah. great. Well, I mean, we could start a series about this. The, if you talk to students now and, I mean, you know, Matt, you've got kids yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So you would probably see, and as, as teachers would see too with the, with the kids, it's how they're learning outside of a, a, a traditional schooling environment is, yeah. is so fascinating because... You look at tool, uh, social media sites like TikTok or even Snapchat or Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Even over these last couple of months, you see these things now with like the you know, like YouTube shorts, whether these 30-second mm. clips. And I will often, I won't even like these videos. I won't share them. I'll just watch them for, for five seconds. And that might be on, I don't know, let's say, Thinking routines, for example. I've stumbled across a video on thinking routines. And then all of a sudden, YouTube thinks, he's watched this video for 10 seconds. This guy is now obsessed with thinking routines. And they'll start to push all of these videos out. And it's the same thing with students. If they start watching videos on uh, cartoons or Dragon Ball Z, well, then that's what they'll, they'll push, right? And so this yeah. is how young people and children are learning now. And they're consuming content in ways that are so quick. And, and so almost, I would say, efficient because the content is being pushed to them and mm-hmm. they will naturally gravitate towards the things that interest them and engage them. And I think yeah. when you think about a traditional schooling system, students don't often have that choice. 9 a.m., here's where they need to be. At 10 a.m., here's where else you need to be. And you will be there for 
for one hour. They don't have the opportunity to kind of go, no, I'm going to swipe past this. It's kind of boring. It doesn't interest me. It's like, no, we will dictate that you must learn this at this time and at this point as part of our scope and sequence document. And so you think of live streaming and and, uh, platforms like Twitch and the way that children are engaging with, with platforms like this now to learn. And I think it has huge implications then for, for how schools actually need to structure yeah. their environments and teachers, again, becoming more of that facilitators of, of learning and content curators to ensure that they're still doing something with it. Yeah. Because effective learning happens when students are doing, right, rather than passively yeah. observing. So interesting. Yeah, I think and that's just one thing, right? You, you think about yeah. COVID and, and, and the pandemic and the big question that I had coming out of it, if we are really out of it, is, okay, what, are the, what does this mean now for schools and for Australian schooling systems? And it's been interesting to see schools pivot and respond to that. And then also mm. some schools go, oh, great, we can now go back to what we had before. And, and I question what's the right thing to do there? Because if you, you look at that data from student capturing student voice, they want parts of online learning. They want parts of um, hybrid learning and having that independence to dictate what they do and when they do it just with some scaffold in place. So do you think, are you confident, obviously you're speaking from a, uh, an independent school perspective, um, but are you sort of confident that generally speaking we can learn from these lessons or do you think we're just going to sort of spring back to old habits? What, what, what's your view on that? I think we have to learn from it and we have to respond and it will be very fascinating in the next 10 years to see the schools that have responded to these societal trends and the schools that, that haven't, but also the schools that are able to stop and pause and go, okay, is what we've been doing for the last 10, 20, 30 years actually the best thing for developing students as that holistic person. And if it's not, then what changes are we making? And mm. so I think we, we have to learn from, from this. And the way in which you know, society changes, it's so quick, it's so quick, it's so fast. And that's extremely difficult because mm. as schools, we want to have that structure, that scaffold, that rigor, you know, that plan of, okay, what do our days look like, our weeks look like? Whereas in reality, that's, potentially not what learning looks like outside of a classroom environment. Mm. So just um, out of interest, Liam, what's something that professionally that hasn't gone as you have expected it? And how have you sort of personally pivoted from that? I mean, we talk a lot about building that capacity. I'm putting you on the spot here, but we talk a lot about building that capacity and that flexibility in students. But uh, is there something that hasn't quite worked out how you had thought? I think the, the assumption that, and I'll say, I'll say we, <laughs> the assumption that, that we make as educators is that students are digital literacy experts because mm. um, at a young age, they're given their iPads, they're given their, their Netflix. You know, I saw an ad the other day and I can't remember the, the, the app name and I, I wouldn't even want to say it anyway, but it was like, it's TikTok for kids. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, and so... I think there's an assumption then that students have these digital literacy skills where they understand what they're consuming, but then also 
know how to navigate it as well. And the, the, the risks that come with open mm. platforms like the internet. And so, yes. Sometimes when I'm working with students, I can make that assumption of going, Oh, you know, they'll know these basics of, uh, you know, what, um, saving documents to the cloud mean and it's like oh okay we, we we don't know that but yet we're also trying to pitch at this really high level because we have this assumption that they're experts in 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 technology when they're potentially yeah. not and so i think i've definitely learned a lot over these these last couple of years in terms of those skills need to still be explicitly taught we can't assume um that they have these skills or that knowledge just because they've been exposed to it at a very young age. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. So do you, um, I, I feel like I know the answer to this, but I want to get you. <laughs> um, so is so is the role of teachers even still important anymore? Um, how do we, uh, what, what are the implications for schools? Uh, what are the implications for, for teacher training? Um, how do we begin to, I guess, reimagine and build those systems so that we can have success in this area huge question again another podcast in itself <laughs> another book in itself look that, that first question that you asked is the role of a teacher needed or necessary a resounding yes i i would <laughs> yes they are because they, they still have to be able to use forms of of, of media and forms of content and to structure it in a way that has a very clearly articulated intention and goal. And once you, you're working towards that, it's almost like, um, you know, a success criteria as such. You're then able to work backwards and go, okay, what does this then look like? So I think the role of a teacher will and has already continued to shift and evolve. And that means that the teacher standing at the front of the room with, 25 students and in rows facing the front of the room and, and the whiteboard that will change. And that is changing now already. And I've spoken with a lot of people about this and I think the natural response to that people come from that place of fear and going, what does that mean? What happens if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't? And it goes, no, it's just, just about taking these small things first, these small steps to, allowing I guess the, the, the world outside of school environments to come in mm. if that if that mm. makes sense because yeah as soon as my, my school day finishes I, I look at the, the world I look at the world around me and going you know is this actually reflective of yeah of, of what we're doing in, in, in yeah. Australian schools and if it's not how do we then shift slightly so that it is because yeah. that, that siloed approach of a single subject at a single time in a classroom of a set number of students, I'm not sure is necessarily the best thing for the next five or 10 years. Yeah. I, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that there is so much change. And for me, I, look, I've been criticised of many things in my career. And one of them is for being annoyingly optimistic. And I will <laughs> take that, you know? And I, and I think it is such a, uh, a significant moment in education in terms of the questions that are being asked about what we teach kids, what do schools look like? What is the purpose and role of of leadership and so on and so forth. And I, and I find this stuff really exciting, but mm. I think some people would find it really unsettling. I mean, how do we, how do we be, even begin to take people through that process of change? Because change is hard. 
Um, and how do we begin to, to do that in a way that's respectful and takes everybody along with us? It's really, as, it's really difficult, yeah. Oh, it, it's, it's, it's challenging. And as you're alluding to, it's a shared journey. It's taking everyone on that journey. And that's not just teachers. It's not uh, professional staff. It's not just students. We're talking the broader parent community as well because they will have a certain perception of what school should look like. It's like when as schools now are slowly moving away from, from focusing on grades and yet we still primarily see from parents or guardians this emphasis yep. on, on grades. And at the end of the year with, with you know, the, the end of school results, it's like we are number 32 in the state, we are number 78 and here's our top performance because that's what appeals to parents and guardians. So it's, I think coming back to that question, it's about taking everyone on that shared journey and, and clearly communicating why we're doing this and also allowing for mistakes. It doesn't need to be perfect. And mm. I'm still working on that myself, you know, this notion yeah. of moving away from, from perfection. And if I make a video or write an article or create a lesson, if the lesson doesn't go very well, no worries. Let's talk about it at the end with the students and go, geez, that didn't work for any of us. Why is that? Let's talk about it. And to, to have that transparency is so fundamentally important when you're navigating that change because otherwise people feel disempowered or unsure and then it, it, it inhibits, it, it, it halts that, that movement. What do you think your colleagues would say about you if they had the chance? My colleagues. Let's get it. Let's find a friend. Let's get, let's, you know, it's almost like a hot seat. Let him go out. Let's, let's yeah. find a friend. No, I... Or what would you, what would you, I guess it depends which one of my colleagues you asked on which day. But, <laughs> and and or, have or, they had their coffee? Is yeah, it Monday or, or Friday? Or maybe what would you like them to say about you? What do you aspire them to say? I, I would hope that they would say that I'm genuine and authentic and someone who is passionate and even as you just said, as someone who is reflective because I, I feel like sometimes I'm a, I'm like a, a figurative sponge walking around. I'm like SpongeBob SquarePants, right? I'm walking around. I'm just trying to absorb as much as possible and to, to learn and continue to, to grow. And so I would hope that they would say that, you know, Liam is passionate. He's enthusiastic. Yeah, he's knowledgeable, but he's also someone who is willing to, to learn from others too and to, you know, continue to, to evolve and to change things. Because my teaching practice is so different from what it was a year ago. And that's so yeah. different from a year beforehand. It's like, when I first started teaching, I used, to ha I used to document all of my lesson plans. And then I got to my second year and I was like, I can't really use any of these anymore because my teaching practice has changed. Mm, and so it should. And so it should, right? And so it should. And, you know, Matt, if you and I were teaching the, the same subject in the same year level, our lessons should be slightly different. Yeah. And we might have the same learning intentions, but how we get there and how we take our our group of students there because it's a different context should be, should be unique. Mm. So I, look, I would just hope that they would say that it's, you know, he's reflective, always willing to change, but yeah, I don't know. We can find a friend and see what they really think. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And Liam, I'm just wondering, um, I mean, how you remain, I mean, obviously uh, you received an award uh, last year for the educational, uh, sorry, education rising star. You didn't pay me to bring that up, but I think it's a, a, <laughs> oh, wonderful, a, a wonderful accolade, but how, how do you sort of, how do you keep that 
passion? I mean, what does your, you mentioned music is a really important part of your life, but what are some of the things that you do uh, that really helps to fuel that passion in the classroom? Because, yeah. The two things that come to mind, I, I try to have a separation between, between work and what I do outside of work. I'll get to my next point in a moment because I'm probably going to contradict myself. But as part of that, it's, it's, I, as I said earlier, I write music, I record music, I produce it. That is a huge passion of mine. I keep it very separate from work because it needs to be separate, but that's what I do. And I play a lot of instruments. I am trying to continue to better myself in, uh, and my music skills. And so I keep those very separate and it's important to be able to have those things that don't feel like you're doing work all the time. And it also means then that I'm, I'm also trying to view things and the things that I do, things that I mm-hmm. read online, not necessarily always with the lens of, of teaching and learning and schools. Have you, have you always done that? I know for me early on, it was a real struggle and I used to feel, I used to feel guilty when I wasn't pursuing something which was directly related to my job have you always been good at that no i haven't um and my honest answer is i'm probably still not very good at that mm-hmm. either because neither yeah i'm not I, either. whilst i will have set hours of th- these are when i'm going to work it's so difficult when you know as you are when you're passionate about education and you're passionate about learning it, it's it's hard to not view things with that teaching lens and mm. i'll often like I'll, my notes app on my phone is just riddled with ideas and considerations and questions and things that won't necessarily even have answers or mm. address, but they just go, oh, cool. What, what does this mean? Oh, this, great. Wouldn't that look fantastic in a grade three mass classroom? Mm. And Well, we are currently recording this in school holidays. So, I mean, that is- <laughs> well, that's right. And so there is a contradiction there because I, I, like, to, I like to create content myself that aligns with education and mm. with, with these broader emerging trends. And, you know, I'll put that out, that out on social media platforms like LinkedIn. And, but I enjoy doing that. And mm. it often doesn't feel like work to me. So if I'm sitting there on a, on a Saturday and I'm, I'm writing a video and I'm editing, it, it doesn't really feel like work to me because I don't always get the opportunity to do that in my mm. Monday to Friday job. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's really important and especially to loop back to what we we're saying in the beginning, like technology is one of those things that is, I mean, it, it's constantly there. I mean, we are constantly connected. We are constantly producing. We are um, at the mercy of these big companies that are trying to market to us. I think I find it as difficult as anybody else to to sort of put my phone down and focus and read a book and, and to be present. And um, I think it's really important to have these conversations about sort of what that looks like, because it doesn't seem to be getting easier. It seems to be getting harder to switch off. Um, yeah. I don't know how you, how you feel about that. Like just to put your phone down, just to be present. Um, I've, I actually find really difficult. Yeah, completely. And there's, I know there's been lots and there always is. It's like that six month news cycle, right? Where, mobile phones in schools is brought up yeah. and there's always differing opinions about that. And I think I, I will try to set some boundaries around going, okay, this is, I, I'm not going to use my phone for a few hours. I'm not going to check it. But mm. at the same time, like I'll use my phone for well-being check-ins. So like I'm using yeah. an app at the moment and I, 
absolutely love it. It's called How We Feel. And it's um, from the researcher Mark Brackett and the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And it's a free app. And I check in twice a day on the mood meter. And I basically say, okay, here's how I'm feeling at the moment. It helps to develop my emotional literacy. It helps me to reflect. Great. I get to think about the things that I'm grateful for. And it's, you know, I use that phone then for a specific purpose. I don't yes. feel like, oh, I'm now picking up the phone. Ah, oh, I shouldn't have used it. Why am I using technology? Ah, you know, it's about going, no, I use that for one minute to check yeah. in. And I'm actually now starting to feel a little bit better about myself. I'm now yeah. putting myself in the right mindset. So, Yeah, look, I think it's so important. I think with many of these things, there are both wonderful opportunities and also um, also incredible challenges. And I, I'm just really grateful, like I said today, that you, you, you took the time just to talk about what you're doing, like what your focus is um, in education. And I think you're, you're, you are sort of uniquely placed in your role, especially across P to 12 or for us, New South Wales people across K to 12 um, to, um, to kind of step back and see a much more broader picture, a much more broader perspective on, on, on schools and how they're operating. And I think it's a, you really are in a privileged position. I think it's a really wonderful, uh, wonderful opportunity. I feel very blessed. Because I, I can't, I'm able to work from that from that primary and that secondary lens, and am able to step back sometimes and to look more broadly outside of that mm. environment. And I know that that's tricky if you're teaching six classes and you've got a yard duty and you've got all these other administrative tasks. So I feel very blessed that I'm able to to do that yeah. and to learn from so many different amazing educators, both in yeah. my current school, but then also outside of school as well. Yeah, yeah. And um, how, how do you want to be remembered in education? Like looking forward, <laughs> I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, I'm not sure how old you are, but looking, looking back, how do you want people to remember you? What sort of impact do you want to have? I think out of all the questions you've asked so far, I reckon that's the most difficult because... Save the best to last. Save the best to last. Yeah. It's a difficult one. Yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd like to be remembered as someone who was able to make a, a broad impact because I, I have ambitious goals of, of, try, of trying to make some kind of impact in Australian schools, not just one or two schools or three schools, but more broadly with, with educators across Australia. And so I, I don't know how I will do that. I don't know what, what that'll look like, but I know that that's my goal. And so mm. I would love to be remembered in 30 years for someone who was able to make some kind of impact. It doesn't need to be huge, it doesn't need to be massive, but just, just, I, just yeah, of note because there's so much potential there. And mm. well, I think you're, you're well on your way um, to doing that. And I think the, um, the success, if you like, of, of, of this past podcast is due to the, uh, the generosity of people like yourself that would give up um, moments when they should be relaxing in school holidays <laughs> and just to have a conversation. And I, I applaud your, um, your honesty and your transparency because I think um, it's really, I mean, it's really refreshing to hear that. It's refreshing to hear people that are, even though they're in positions like yourself, um, leading a significant component of the school, there is still that um, 
open-mindedness. There's still the that vulnerability. There's still a, um, a, a just a, a perspective of approaching things as a learner, which I think is is incredibly refreshing. And I'm so grateful that that notion of leadership and what it is to be a leader is is changing away from that top-down bottom to more of a I guess more of a servant model where we're supporting people. But what it, what are your thoughts um, kind of on that changing notion of what leadership is? And um, yeah. You're right. It's that movement away from that top down. Mm. And I'm so grateful for that because we've all experienced that and it doesn't, it may get short-term results, but it doesn't, I believe it doesn't build anything long-term. Um, but yeah. Have you and, seen and a bit of Completely. And I think that's why we're seeing in schools now, so many roles pop up that aren't necessarily here is your three to five year position. Here's your, your time allocation. It's more about saying, well, here's, here's a project that you might like to work on for three months and you know, mm. take away a few of your yard duties. Maybe we'll cover a class once a fortnight, but yeah. you know, adopting those distributed leadership principles to, to allow for people to step up and to draw from their own personal strengths so that it's not a few select individuals in a school leading that change. And if something, you know, if they were to move on, you know, that whole, that whole program, that whole project falls apart. It's like, no, we've got to be able to draw from the experts in our school because there are so, so many of them. Mm. So I, I'm glad that schools are moving away from that top-down approach where you have these select roles, but actually saying, no, let's, let's try to enable and empower everyone in, in, in the school and whether that's teachers, whether that's non-teaching staff, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And even from that student leadership perspective too, capturing mm. and activating that student voice so that they're also able to instigate some change and lead change and, and genuine change, not tokenistic to go, well, this is what we do at our school, but to actually say, no, these students have introduced this program and they are now running it and they're supporting it with, with, with the school's uh, support or some help, should I say. Um, Amazing. Look, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, we are almost at the end of our questions, so I will let you go and enjoy your school holidays in a moment. But um, imagine you were uh, sitting down um, with someone who was just about to step foot in the classroom. So brand new teacher, fresh faced, uh, wonderfully optimistic. What would be um, a piece of advice that you'd give them? This may not necessarily align with everything we've been speaking about, but I think it's important. Okay. I, the emphasis that needs to be placed on developing those, those real relationships and that rapport with, with students and the, the importance of knowing the students that you are teaching because I think people entering the profession now, naturally the first thing that you want to do is you want to, to mirror the things that you're exposed to when you're in school. And that may have been having these fantastic relationships with your teachers, but yeah. it may have also meant the opposite too, where teachers may have adopted a very punitive approach that didn't value those relationships. So I'd be saying to new teachers, and I say to them now, it's, it's, that's, the thing, that's the, almost the thing you lead with. Lead with the relationship. Everything else will, will, will follow because if you start leading with going, here's what I want to achieve, here's, here's the learning that needs to happen. I'm trying to manage my class, but they're not, not responding well. They're being misbehaved. It's like just underpinning everything just lead with those emotions uh, with with the relationships mm -hmm. because you can't have that quality teaching and learning if students don't feel cared for and if students mm -hmm. don't feel like you you know them and so yeah. don't worry about technology don't worry about traditional forms whatever 
focus on those relationships and knowing your students and everything else can come later and everything else will be a whole lot easier. Fantastic. I think that is a, a wonderful place um, to end. Some really great advice there. I wish someone had sat down with me when I first started teaching and <laughs> me about that um, or reminded me of that. Um, just in closing, where can people find out more about you and follow your journey and the work that you're doing? The first, the first place would probably just be on my, my LinkedIn. So if they were to yep. look up Liam Bassett, they'd be able to find me on LinkedIn. I, I try to post um, relatively frequently these days because of the things that, as we spoke about, I try to do on the weekends. But uh, you can also go to my website, which is just liambassett.com, and I have all of my videos and articles there from LinkedIn just in the one centralised place. So yeah. you can also go there as well. Fantastic. Well, I will uh, make sure that all the links uh, to those resources are um, placed in the show notes. And Liam, I, I'm hugely grateful uh, for you taking the time. And as I mentioned, the only reason why uh, this podcast has been uh, successful, if you like, is due to the generosity of people like yourself. Um, and so thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. And uh, you are always welcome to come and do a round two uh, whenever, whenever you're free. So uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries, Matt. It was awesome to speak in. Absolutely. Happy to chat anytime. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.